Right, hello, and welcome to His Darker Materials. I'm Dave Corkery, and I'm here with my co-host, Helen O'Hara. Hello, Helen. Hello. And this is, of course, the show where we recap the HBO BBC series, His Dark Materials, the adaptation of Philip Pullman's awesome fantasy trilogy. And as always, we are going to spoil everything up to season three, episode five, of his dark materials and you're not just going to be hearing from us uh we've got interviews with the cast and the crew which we are plugging into uh, our whole season so uh listen out for some of that later on uh so helen episode five what you what you reckon on this one this was some pretty exciting stuff here like some shit went down quite frankly <laughs> yeah there were some major major movements forward yeah you know you've got uh, mary meeting the malefa and sort of settling in beginning to learn their language beginning to learn about this sort of alien culture. Are they aliens if they're on a parallel world, uh, I guess? Um, I don't know. I, I don't I, know. I, I always kind of imagine them as kind of like, uh, what if elephants evolved differently? Yeah. You also have a huge amount of movement in the Land of the Dead. And you have uh, very exciting stuff for Mrs. Coulter with the uh, with the Magisterium. So, yeah, I thought this was... This was pretty phenomenal stuff. Action packed. Action packed. Seriously, yeah. And and well, let's start with Mary, uh, Mary Malone, because she she gets some action in this episode <laughs> because we've been saying, you know, it's a bit. It was all very leisurely with Mary up up till this point, and like now, uh, you know, things are starting to get a bit more interesting and meaty. So M- Mary is learning about the Malefa and their culture, and most importantly, their language. I, re- I really liked how they expressed the, the passage of time here and uh, the the way that um, Mary is learning this language. And I, I really liked the use of subtitles in particular here as well. Yeah, it's really clever. So you see, you know, the Malefa like deliver a huge sentence and then the subtitles essentially go, yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's, that, um, it's that thing you say, I think uh, Lawson Translation did a really good job of it where the... You know, a director speaks for a vast amount of time in Japanese and the translator just gives you three words, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it felt a little bit like that, but but obviously it's not that. It's actually someone just trying to figure out the language one word at a time and spotting a word here and there and being like, oh, I know that one. Yes, yeah. I've got that. Thervetha, I, knew, I know that means beer. But the rest of what you just said, no idea, none whatsoever. And that, that is how she, yeah, that's how she's learning this language is like, yeah, just literally one word at a time and then putting it down in a book. And I think it tells us, you know, Mary is still a scientist and she's methodical and she's treating this language a bit, a bit like that. You know, it's kind of just like figuring it out. It's a puzzle, another puzzle for her to figure out. It is. I loved her book because it felt like a science Nope, a scientist's notebook, you know, but someone with an interest in basically everything. Somebody who wants to understand everything. I love as well that they... And this is something that one of our interviewees has talked about, but I love that they added in the gestures of the Malefa's trunk play a role in their language. So she sort of sometimes will flick her mm, hands yeah. as she's speaking to them in, in an attempt to sort of echo that trunk gesture and sort of, you know, presumably add emphasis or add nuance to a word. I love that we see Malefa wheels. So this, yeah. for people who haven't read the books... This is something that we've occasionally alluded to and talked about with some of our interviews in the past, but this is a big deal. So the idea is that these creatures use seed pods from those giant trees that they live among as wheels and they grab them in their feet and they roll along the roads on wheels. And and this is not the kind of mechanic that is described in the book. Exactly. Not exactly. Not exactly. But the idea... I think fair play to them. They found a way to yeah. to get it in there without it looking stupid. And ultimately, that's the main objective, right? So That, yeah. exactly. And, and look, I'm super happy with how they look because I think they're really cute without being Disney, as I said last time. But I think what is, what is great about this mechanism that come up with is I cannot conceive, and I'm not an artist, but I still cannot conceive of how you make the book Mulefas look anywhere close to this cool. And I feel like this is a really good uh, response. So for those who haven't read the books, the book Malefa have an almost like diamond-shaped backbone, right? So it's all it's like sort of got four corners, their backbone. And the two middle corners are the legs which hold 
the seed pod in kind of long claws for that purpose that go through the middle of the seed pod and then their front and back leg hold the seed pod and then their side legs just kind of push themselves along like they're sitting on a skateboard. That's the idea. And that's kind of weirder looking, I think, than what they've come up with here, which is it has a sort of skateboardery movement because they're kind of going side to side as they go down the hill as they push themselves along with their other feet. It's more roller skates than than skateboard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And and this means that they can have big, flat, cute, likable herbivore feet and not have long claws coming out in a way that might make you worry that they were going to claw you, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I thought that worked really well. I think so too. And look, ultimately, I mean, like, people are probably going to complain. Someone's going to complain somewhere on the internet. Someone but, but, somewhere. <laughs> but like, I mean, like, what, what, what do people want? Like, I mean, you, you've got, you've, <laughs> you've got to bring these ideas and this story to life in a way that's not distracting. I think that just would have been too distracting and wouldn't have added anything except to be pure, a pure expression of what was written down the page, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think this is this is such a good design. I'm just loving it. I also just love that you know we see a bit of Malefa life. We see the kids playing with seed pods like a ball, like a football. Um, yeah. And you get to see them talking to each other, and you get to see, you know, them te- helping teach Mary the language. Actually, not just it's not mm. like she's there and they're they're kind of ignoring her. Like Atal, her friend, is clearly going kind of step by step when she and answering questions when she can and things like that. I, so. I, I, I really love the voice that they've produced. You know, it's very, um, you know, the, with the voice acting and whatever little effect they've done in it, it's very sort of soft and kind of welcoming. And the language itself is, um, is quite, you know, it's quite beautiful and, and like nice and sort of almost mystical. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, it, th- th- this whole thing just feels like a nice warm hug, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And it's meant to, I think. They're meant to be this kind of Edenic society, I think. I suspect it's I suspect there's a little bit of a nod and a, there's a little bit of a deliberate tribute. And probably people have argued about this for years or, or talked to Philip Pullman about this already, and I just haven't read the scholarship. Um, but I think there's probably a nod to Jonathan Swift and Gulliver's Travels and the Winhams. Oh, in sure. Gulliver's yeah. Travels, who were the sort of the, the horsey people who also lived in the sort of perfect society you yeah. know, in, in that. So there, there might be a, a, an element of deliberate kind of, you know, reference to, to fantasy gone by, but it's definitely, it's definitely the most benign place in, in this multiverse. That we've seen, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and a particular contrast to the other plot here in the land of the dead. But I guess before we move on, we should also say, I guess, a c- couple of other things that happen. Mary's very interested in this word, sraf and figures out through the amber spyglass uh very important that's the title of the book that i'm just doing the uh, leonardo dicaprio pointing meme now for helen <laughs> she she figures out that it's dust by viewing it through um this lens you know she sort of again scientifically figures out that the uh, the amber is able to show the dust and that that's the shraf so it's all coming together it is there's a lot of research scientists in this in this story aren't they between mary uh, mrs coulter um, Lord Asriel, Dr. Cooper, you know, there's a lot of it going on. And Asriel has a similar sort of uh, thing, doesn't he, that he uses on the angels to see the, mm. the dust, you know, that little yeah. lens. He's got he's got a, a sort of a more scientific looking thing. Not, whereas <laughs> yes, Mary just finds it in the uh, finds it in the river. Yeah, finds like, yeah, this this sort of and, and it's only when some oil of, from the seed pods gets on it that it really kind of activates and starts working yes. as well, which is interesting, interesting. So let's chat about the land of the dead. So this place is a real downer, isn't it? You know what? I, I think that's fair. I don't <laughs> think you're going too far there. I mean, it's just dark. It's foggy. You know, when they go, they take, step off the boat and the boat almost instantly disappears. God bless him. He does give them a light before he leaves. So fair play to the boatman. Um, but they, they sort of walk off into what looks like this canyon, you know, that, that really striking shot of them just walking through these towering cliffs on either side. And then as they go deeper and it becomes more and more oppressive and sort of, you know, there's a roof overhead as well, clearly. This idea, it's not rock, it's people's things, yeah. um, which is somehow very, very it's sinister. Yeah. It's really creepy. And and I think, I wonder as well if it goes back, you remember in the in the very first book, there was a lot of talk about how 
things that that conscious people had interacted with have more dust on them than other things. Do you remember? So, so like tools that were made by Stone Age people when they were sort of beginning to become self-aware have dust on them. And I wonder if there's meant to be a thing between that and them making up the walls of this world. I don't know. Anyway, that's pure speculation. That's nice. I hadn't thought of that. This plot thread is is about remembering and 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 memories and storytelling and places but i think that also relates to things you know people get attached to things and objects and those are linked to our memories so there there is i guess a part of ourselves if you represent that as dust would i guess leave an imprint on a thing and then that, and then there's a shadow of that in the land of the dead. So yeah, I think you're right. I yeah, think it's a nice, makes sense. nice idea. Yeah, yeah. and because everyone there is losing their memory, everyone there is is just gradually fading and fading and fading into darkness. And I thought it was it was beautifully done when Lyris finds Roger first of all, and and starts talking to him and starts reminding him of their life, and he and basically a light, a lit, literally a light goes on. Literally, a light goes on nearby, but also like color starts to return to his face, and and he starts looking a little bit more lively, a little bit less corpsey, and and then other people start to come around and listen, and the light almost starts to spread. And there's that there's that great moment where you can see the dead walking in a direction, and you can just hear Lyra's voice. You can't see her at that point, but you can just hear her telling stories, and it's the one noise in this whole empty land. And everyone's attracted to it and everyone wants to be close to this. I thought it was such a great adaptation of, of the book, first of all, but also this idea of this girl can move mountains. She can move worlds just with the power of her, you know, ideals. Her tongue, her silver her tongue. Her tongue, her silver yeah. tongue, yeah. No, you're right. And I love um, the I love the idea that uh, that this is getting across, that, 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 that storytelling has power and it can create you know, bring communities together, it brings people together, it creates movement and can topple the the biggest institutions and ideas because that's because it's also the power that the magisterium and, and the authority are using. They're telling their own stories, but they're they are, you know, this their stories, they're using stories to define reality and to subjugate everybody and Lyra is using the same tools to break free of that and I think that's it's just awesome because that's all life is so it's what we are doing right now is talking about a story right yeah (laughs) yeah but yeah you're absolutely right and and you get that so much in this episode and it's it's so elegantly done because also it it works the other way you also have um, the harpies as well when they sort of they try to almost hypnotize Will and Lyra and you can see them beginning to almost sink into this trance and and I think what was fascinating, that, that scene was brilliant because when the harpy mentions Will to Lyra as part of this kind of massive guilt trip that she's trying to lay on her, if only Will had never met you, that's the bit that snaps her out of it a little bit. That's the bit that kind of enables her to fight back. So again, it's their bond that enables her to scream defiance and and then shake Will out of it and then basically, you know, get them back on track. I like that. Yeah, that was really great. It's like what happened uh, when Will was forging the knife and reforging it and she she was the one that kind of kept his focus, right? They 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 kind of united and better together. Exactly, yeah. And so you get her giving her giving a sort of big stirring speech about, you know, in here, it's just the thoughts out there, things matter. You've got that old lady who stands up and essentially denounces all religion. So, you know, th- that could be <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, controversial. There's, there's there's a lot of religious subtext here, but then there's just text. <laughs> that's just well. full on text. She's yeah, just that's... like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they used to tell us that there was a heaven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this whole idea is so awful and disconcerting that at the end of, you know, you're, you're made a promise and then turns out oh, there is an afterlife, but it's like it's this. And 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 somebody says it's not. You know, this isn't uh, life after death. It's a prison camp. To discover that that is the end of the road, this eternal prison camp, is so demoralizing and such a terrifying idea. Yeah, it's um, it's really it's a really nasty nasty story turn. We do, however, have one of the most emotional beats of the series so far, though this this season, because. You know, there's this girl who's causing a stir through the land of the dead, and 
somebody who seems to have kept a little bit of himself to himself is Lee Scoresby, and he comes back yeah. to see what's up. And I thought their reunion was absolutely lovely because she's just gotten through talking about how he is the first growing up she ever trusted, mm. um, which I think is unfair to the master of Jordan College, but fine. Um, <laughs> the wonderful Clark Peters. Yeah. Yes, indeed. But for him to sort of just find her, for him to still have a, a sense of himself, even in this awful place, um, and for them to get that reunion, I thought was just heartbreaking. And then he he just immediately is like, okay, she's got, she'll, she'll have a plan. Follow her, follow the kid with the knife. I'll go back and round up the stragglers so everybody gets out. I mean, perfect. I'm super into it. I, I love that it's the people like him and Yorick who kind of figured out quite early on that there's something about Lyra and that they they will just let her do her thing and follow her. And it's people like Asriel who completely disregarded her and has been doing in this season as well. Like, forget her, right? And then Coulter, who's just trying to control her or protect her. It's It's, you know... It's friendship and the the people that that's and loyalty, right? I mean, I, I you know they're men of action, but they're not unthinking men of action. You know, if, both Yorick and he's not a man, a man of action and a bear of action. <laughs> but you know, they, they sort of they do sense something in in Lyra, as did you know John Farr, the 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 king of the Egyptians. Oh uh, yeah. Oh my god, that feels like so long ago. So many years ago. <laughs> but I think you know, there, there's always been a there's a sort of game recognizes game element to it yes. I, I feel like and um and apparently not every player has that when you get to Azrael in particular but yeah I, I i just love their reunion it really it really made me tear up a little bit and um i thought that was lovely beautifully played Right, today's guest is producer Stephen Harron, who started out as an editor on the show and has worked his way up to producing and been really, really key in getting everything onto screen in one piece. As ever with our interviews, there may be some spoilers for the rest of the season, so do please tread carefully if you haven't yet seen up to episode eight. I'd also like to apologise personally because uh, Stephen is also Irish and myself and Dave's accents may also get stronger as we all talk together. So if you can't understand anything, I'm sorry. I'll try and provide a translation if you come and chat to me on Twitter. <laughs> Otherwise, please enjoy Stephen Harrell. So we are delighted to be joined by Stephen Harron, who is one of the producers of His Dark Materials. Uh, Stephen, how are you doing? Very well. Thank you for having me in this little Irish triumvirate. <laughs> it <is a> <laughs> yeah, it's like a reunion. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't see you guys at the last uh, Irish 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 people reunion. Like in, no, like I was Ireland. there alone. I thought I was there alone. Yeah. <laughs> You've been on this show, I think, since first season. So, how does it feel to have it all out the door? It, it feels it feels slightly anticlimactic, uh, but it's you know very satisfying to see it come together at the end. And I think I feel the third season is I think it is the best one. I think it rivals the first. But I think in terms of it's, um, you know, it's a very, been a very difficult thing to adapt and a very difficult thing to visualize and a very difficult thing to compress and all the difficult things. Uh, but I think, you know, on the whole, it's pretty successful, I hope. Can I, can I ask then, Stephen, on that, on that subject, the challenges of adapting it? You know, Helen and I have spoken about the third book in particular being having some really like meaty ideas and visuals like it seems like that that must be an absolute nightmare to get to the screen what 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 were the biggest challenges when you guys were were looking at it well obviously the writers we had three writers this season were you know at the forefront of dealing with that but um from my point of view one of the biggest problems was just budget because you you can never do all of the things all of the time so i think if you're really really going for it as much as you possibly could and money was no object you know you'd be doing these things wall to wall but actually we had to be as, as ever since the beginning had to be slightly more choice in what we did i think that you know the malefo was always going to be a major challenge but you know russell visual effects supervisor and his team rose to the challenge very quickly that was a kind of a long one in gestation um i think the design had settled reasonably early and then it became more of a question of how you translate that on screen and, and dramatically. So that was absolutely, I think from my point of view, that was probably the thing I was worried about the most, which probably through worrying about it, it therefore kind of worked itself through, if you know what I mean, because I worried about it for so long and so often that you kind of go incrementally through that 
uh, process, even if it's just in my own head and kind of reached a place with it that felt quite happy, actually. You know, Metatron and the authority, you know, certainly tricky uh, and we've gone about it a particular way. That's been quite a difficult one. Um, the rest of it, I think, unless I'm forgetting something, the harpies, harpies kind of seem to happen quite naturally. I think, you know, I'd love to have had more harpies, but then, you know, you need more screen time um, and you need more money. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> li li limited by all these things. But I think on the whole, you know, it feels like pretty richly varied palette of things. And I think hopefully we've done justice to all of those different components. That's awesome. And uh, tell me as well about, you know, your background is as an editor. So you're coming at this from a sort of, okay, it's all very well shooting this, but we also have to put it together at the end. <laughs> and it has to make sense and we have to have all the pieces we need. So, you know, how does that help, I guess, when you when you go on set as a producer? I mean, it feels like it should. It should help. Uh, no, I think, I think it means, I mean, I think it does help because, you know, I had a, a strong sense. So season one, actually, I, did, I wasn't there from the absolute beginning. So I, I was there from post-production, basically, um, after the shoot's over. So it just happened that that's when I joined. So that was my, my, my initial experience of making the show was very much how on earth are we going to make this work? And I've had no say-so whatsoever in what we've shot and how we've shot it. Um, so it was a very kind of reactive, somewhat, I would say, audience almost like an audience experience of, of trying to make it work and they'd actually done a fair amount of editing already so you know they'd explore different avenues and then i was like reasonably fresh when i turned up i think that by the time you get to season three i believe i had a reasonably strong sense of what tended to work for us on screen and certain things to avoid and certain things to pursue i did want to Personally, I'm sure you know everyone else had their own versions of this. I personally wanted to try as much as possible to go for a slightly bolder storytelling style, you know, within the limits of what the show is and within the limits of you know episodic TV and you know 60 minute episodes. So you know, with the, actually the Mary storyline is an example of that, where I felt that there was a slightly more cinematic way to go about it, and I was also trying to bring as much scale as possible if and when I could influence that throughout. So trying to go for, you know, moments, even at script stage, which felt to me slightly more filmic and less dialogue led sometimes or ways of staging things that I thought would be interesting. You kind of, you know, worked on that in conjunction with everyone else on the team. Um, but that's, I, I really felt the, a need or desire to kind of, you know, really one up what we had done before and just try and improve where I felt that maybe we'd, we'd slightly fallen short just from, in my point of view. Can I, can I ask you a sort of a slightly almost job interviewee kind of question? Yeah, please, please. I'm, I, I'm interviewing at the moment. So anything. Well, I don't have a job for you, Stephen, at the end of this, I'm afraid. But, <laughs> but, um... why, why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah, you've come to the wrong interview, but I, I'm kind of curious, like you're in a position where you're at the center of a lot of different sort of creative output. So you're dealing with the directors and the, you know, the cast heads of department VFX, right? So you, you're sort of as a producer having to manage all these people. Can you give me an example of a time where, the, where you, you guys were faced with an unexpected or, or even an expected challenge? And then how did you guys resolve that? I'm always kind of interested in that process. That's such a job interview question. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah. I, I, prob I probably should be, should be prepared for that. I would probably return to Malefa, although it's not the center. Okay, arguably it is slightly somewhat of the center of the story. Depends how or what direction you come at it from, but it's a kind of main through line through the story that resolves in quite a clear way at the end. But it's not always at the forefront of the of the narrative. Um, I guess because it was just a series of challenges and questions and it didn't it wasn't it just wasn't completely obvious how one approached it so i guess that's one where we kind of went through it iteration by iteration i mean initially my memory is is that at script stage you know it was a series of traditional scenes spread across the episode so you know mary meets a towel a towel and mary have a conversation etc 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 and I felt quite strongly that the the nature of that story, I might be slightly hard pushed to explain why, but I felt kind of instinctively felt that the nature of it meant that it would do better um, played out in a, in a slightly different style. 
So rather than cut to Mary and Atal having chat, I felt it was partly because it's about discovery and to represent Mary's journey of discovery in that world, let's say, you actually need to spend an enormous amount of time in it and kind of live with it. So if you were to, you know, any kind of new world narrative that you can think of from a film is kind of a bit close to that type of idea. But to do that, you really need to, to hang out. And the thing was that when you spread those types of hanging out scenes across a pretty dynamic multi-narrative, if, if I'm honest, it sometimes felt that it sank a bit when you then went to that type of scene because ultimately it's about the feeling of it. So while we were scripting, but very close to starting to shoot that section, um, I think it was me who said, I think we should you know, shoot what we shoot and write what we write. But actually I have a feeling that one way to ha handle this is going to be to compress it. And I, and I don't mean to compress compress can sound like, you know, we're minimizing it or um, taking, you know, taking quality away or, you know, whatever, or, or being afraid of it. What, what I meant by compress was that it, you're going to have to kind of create a fluid sense of Mary's journey through that world. And especially when you're telling a story, which initially is about Mary not understanding anything and then slowly understanding things. That's very, very difficult to tell unless you either spend loads of time or a very fluidly told version of that time. And that did take quite a while. And then when we and then when we were shooting, so we went to Spain to shoot a lot of the exterior stuff. Um, and when we were there, we had a lot of scripted stuff, but we were also we also had a list of beats that myself and um, Russell, visual effects supervisor, uh, who's directing a lot of that stuff, came up with, which were Mary does this, Mary does that, Natal leaves her over here, oh, there's a nice location, why don't we shoot Mary doing this or that? And we didn't really know how much of it was going to cut it, um, quite literally. And, and we didn't quite know how it was going to work, but it felt like beyond the, the beyond the central scenes that we that we knew we were going to need, it felt that this might be, this a set of beats would be very helpful. So then we worked through that. And then when we got to editing, then it became a sense of, okay, how do you make this dynamic interesting, not dull? How do you do it without resorting to Mary doing a voiceover where Mary says, oh, Tuesday, I met a towel Wednesday, you know, <laughs> she showed me a seed pod. Uh, th th fr Friday, I thought, maybe this is dust. Is this dust? Question mark in the diary? You know, we just didn't want to, I really, really didn't want to resort to that person because I just felt it would be really cheap. It's very Craig David as well. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> yeah. By the time I met Atal on a Monday, yeah, he'd taken me out and she would be home by Sunday. Yeah, that, and then, you know, the editing experience of that was more of the same, just kind of how do you make it coherent? How do you keep it rolling? How do you get the right balance of information versus experience? How do you make it visual? How do you make it sumptuous? But how do you also hopefully get people to understand what it's all about? And, you know, it, it was difficult. Well, look, I think you did a really good good job as an audience member. You conveyed it really well that moment. But but for me, one thing that really struck me in that was the uh, the use of subtitles to convey the slow understanding of a language. I, I I don't think I'd seen that before. I thought that was quite quite a nice touch. Yeah, that was something. So when we um, I had been, I think I said it already. I had been worrying about Malefa for a while, and I think I'd managed to, you know, I'd read the I'd been a latecomer to the books and. I, I think I'd read the book, um, you know, while we were finishing season two. So uh, we hadn't yet got into, you know, prep or anything for season three. So there were a couple of things that suddenly like bonked me in the head. And one of them was, oh boy, how on earth are you going to do this? And I had a few references, some of which are reasonably random. But one of them was initially, okay, actually animated subtitles. There's a movie called uh, Night Watch, a, a Russian vampire movie that oh, does yeah. some interest, interesting subtitling stuff. Yeah, it comes up with blood and stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, that's what I thought of when they when she started talking. For, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, that was some of those are percolating. But now that didn't go into the script. I think that was kind of for me. That was part of a long process and talking with the execs about it. It was a long process of for me keeping stuff in the bank at the back of my head for like okay will this work and i'm not quite sure so, but but initially the first line of approach was to just play the scenes very naturalistically and not do anything too bonkers stylistically um 
which you know you could do but we decided to play it quite you know real and you know russell's uh, one of russell's references it was kind of terence malick style almost which i'm not quite sure that's you know where we ended up but that was kind of an initial aspect of it um, and then when we were editing really it was actually only at a point where myself and the editor were working on it kind of siloed off um i can't remember i think we'd shown a few versions of it to people but it was it started off, you know, very rough, you know, like very, very rough. And you've obviously got no animation. You've just got a random puppet head and, and all this kind of stuff. Right. And, uh, and, but by the time we maybe got into our second or third pass of it, I think then I dropped the subtitle idea and I thought, okay, right. But how would you do it? And how would you make it so that it's not just trans so i guess okay the, the, the interesting aspect about it which is hopefully what you're what you're responding to is what the subtitles are doing or is trying to visually even though text on screen is not you know traditionally very interesting to look at they're visually trying to show you what the process of learning a language is so certain words stick they literally hang on the screen in the air and then little by little those building blocks and build up into her understanding and so we just had to myself and the editor went through and tried to track through what 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 mary could take from each of those scenes and it's probably not a spoiler to say that we you know kept on rewriting a tal's lines in order to kind of reach a point at which uh, a tal's line could help us make sense of what the scene was um, and, and ultimately just end up on what do these things mean to mary I mean, it seems to me that in general you have a, a major storytelling challenge this season. And these, this even even more than the last two, because everyone, especially at the beginning of the season, is utterly scattered um, across worlds, and you have to keep all those plates spinning and sort of reintroduce an audience after a gap of what two years. Uh, you know, I, I feel like those first episodes must have been something of a, a, a headache as well. Yeah, I think that, you know, that they, yeah, there was a lot of stuff to get in there. And I think, you know, traditionally early episodes in, in any, in a season of anything tend to be uh, the most fruity in terms of how you can kind of compress them right down. But in terms of what you, what you prioritize, I mean, what you've got, particularly in the first two apps, arguably, is you kind of got, you know, the return of, dynamic James McAvoy kind of powering you through. So what you had to do was just kind of hang on to him because actually what the story's doing, which is, you know, a bit different is that he's, he's kind of charging through, but actually Lyra, Daphne, who is your traditional lead is, you know, largely comatose. So what, what you're doing <laughs> is you're kind of, what you're, what you're kind of doing is just trying to set up the stakes and, and through, through James, what you're able to do is you're able to, set up a knowledge and an understanding and through a good way of what the greater stakes are. And so by, so by focusing on that and by um, playing some of that out, you kind of get ahead before all the major characters start to meet properly. You know? Starting with uh, essentially Commando Azrael uh, gives you a lot of, it gives you a quick pressy and a quick reminder as well as, you know, a bit of, yeah, as you say, dynamism. You're seeing some of it through a Gunway's eyes and, you know, so Gunway is your audience and he's coming, you know, as written, uh, he's coming from a world without all of these things. So, or, you know, with some similarities to the other world. So, yeah, you're kind of hanging on to Gunway's point of view as well as a kind of someone who's reasonably sane and grounded. How about just breaking down the philosophy of this season? You know, because you are literally dealing with a war on heaven. You're dealing with the issues and ideas of religion that, that Philip Pullman, I think, wanted to explore in these books really only come to a massive head in the third one, it feels like. And so what was it like trying to get a balance between that and, and the sort of the adventurer nature of the show and you know the fact that you have these two kids on an adventure even if it's one that's getting steadily and steadily sort of darker and higher stakes i mean it, it, it's really tricky i would say quite a lot of those that type of story challenge was always there it's usually kind of told through characters that's kind of arguably aside from lyra and will if you know what i mean so uh, so although Lyra encounters some of that early on. She's, you know, young and therefore doesn't have a complete understanding. So I th I think, yeah, the, the, the difficult thing is to try and translate for an audience. Promise that something big is going to come, a little bit unclear what that is, and then try to work through some of the more abstract elements of it. Yeah, it's very tricky. That's fair. <laughs> can, can you tell us a bit, um, Stephen, about 
the land of the dead. We've seen, you know, the afterlife presented uh, quite a lot through TV and films over over many decades. But this one feels a little bit different, I guess. What, 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 what? When you went into that, were you really looking to sort of make a mark or stamp it out or make it look different to what we might have expected? Well, I think that, you know the art department and Joel Collins, production designer, kind of central to that. I think you know the the, the idea that it's a, a place that's can you know the, the land that is constructed from people's memories uh, and that, that this is kind of visualised by. Um, the idea that people's objects make up the walls of the area and and actually also sort of rewinding a wee bit I, f- I kind of forget how this happens in the book or how it's told in the book but we go through the suburbs of the dead first and land of the dead and suburbs of the dead which is your first stage is slightly more of a kind of civil service experience of it's a bit you know closer to what i thought was a slightly more brazil-like version of things i mean i think um you know it was a great deal of it was is down to art department and you know what what they felt and uh, what Joel felt could be done in that space. I mean, the bigger, the biggest challenge really actually was the harpies and how much of the harpies we could show because they're so catastrophically expensive and, um, <laughs> and, 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 how, and how you could, how you could use them to drive it because arguably, I mean, you could say this about loads of different elements and it's always a bit tricky, which is on the one hand, you could say they're, they're not the most important thing in the show, for sure, but you do need them and they do serve a purpose and, you know, they ultimately drive the story forward. So it was just a, a question of how you come back to, to that. Like, how do you use them to, to drive Lara forward ultimately, you know, which is, I think, the question I was always asking myself throughout the seasons, really. That's the thing you have to return to. Spoken like a true producer, Stephen. The, uh, <laughs> you know, mourning your budget as you go. <laughs> But I did find that fascinating because because Jane talked about this as well. The fact that you know this is a this is a big budget show by I don't know Coronation Street standards. Although I don't know what their wages bill is, maybe it's very high. But it, you know by the standards of a sort of Lord of the Rings or a Game of Thrones, this is this is much much smaller. Oh, we're a fraction, yeah. So it's it doesn't look it. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot a lot of that is because so I think one of the reasons it doesn't look it, I hope, is because you know there's a a sense of taste and a sense of excellence across the departments. And so, uh, you know, and visual effects is a big part of that. So I think, you know, I guess the feeling was, you know, you never let something visually creep in that lets you down. Um, And so if you're operating at that level, which is absolutely what everyone's intent was across the board, then that means that you're probably quite realistic about how much it's going to cost to do that thing right um, and therefore pretty quickly you start having to let go of things i mean obviously yeah you would you know in an ideal world you, you would you would populate scenes with even more but it does it does um force us to be far more choice in, in what we deploy when uh, and more kind of story specific i hope so i don't i don't think there's too many examples of times where we've kind of used very expensive ways of just doing kind of shoe leather you know that we tend to kind of make it pretty we try to use the uh, this stuff pretty boldly and kind of as a way to drive the story forward you know that's the ultimately all it's about i have to say the the shot of pan on the on the key side as oh, yeah. as lyra's leaving and it's a, it's a much sort of closer like closer in shot than we often get of him and it felt like yeah. that was a moment that was a kind of a hero moment for him oh i think that that scene is uh, I think might be our best scene. I mean, it, you know, I've, it has reduced me to tears more than once. You know, and, and you kind of, one of the funny things about going through a process of filmmaking is that you, especially the way that, you know, how long things take to do and you have to kind of largely do things in a certain kind of order in order to uh, help everyone work and help everyone finish and, you know, do the, do their piece. But what it means is that, you know, so you have it at script stage. The script stage was very strong. Uh, the shoot was really strong when it's just Daphne against the puppet or against an empty space. And then you get into the edit. And when, what we were doing was we reached a very strong version of that quite quickly. But then we started to embellish it. It's one of the real pleasures of some of that material was that it was already very strong. So in the end, what you're doing is you, you're not kind of doing damage limitation. What you're doing is you're finessing and fine tuning very, very quickly. So it actually, a lot of that stuff got expanded further. Um, so the scene got kind of stronger and stronger, and then it gets handed over to visual effects. And we have a kind of collaboration over a number of months, let's say, on, on everything, but on, on that specific scene. And little by little, 
you know, Russell's pushing animation further and further and further. You know, we had lots of conversations, Russell and I, about, you know, at what point does, um, at what point does Pan turn away in conversation? You know, we were kind of, you're, you're largely locked into what you shot, but, you know, you try to think of creative ways to, to do that. And then, you know, within that, you've also got the day on which you record Pan's voice, which I think from memory, we did two sessions of, uh, some of which was pretty uh, kind of heartbreaking to record. It was kind of extraordinary. And then, you know, you, you get to music and you, you hope that the music will push it further. And then in the end, you got sound mix and the grade and all these kinds of things. And each of these stages, from my point of view, is one where you you reintroduce yourself to what the scene is and you try to, I try to uh, refresh myself um, of what has come before so that I can try and encounter each stage anew so that we can make the, from my point of view anyway, from my, my role in it, make the, the strongest choices so that we can end up at the absolute ultimate version of it, which I do think that's an example. I think of if anything in the show uh, that we've achieved, I, I'm pretty sure that must be our strongest moment, I think. I agree. I think it's quite, it, it is quite an accomplishment that you guys managed to deliver, I agree, one of the most heartbreaking moments of this uh, series and show. And it's between, you know, a digital character and, and, a, and a human character. And that that is no small achievement. So I guess well done on that. And you guys do manage to create a sense of scale when you have to, uh, uh, when it's, you know, both literally scale or just emotional scale with the tools you have but i'm kind of i can't i'm hung up now on the cost of a harpy and how many demons i could get for a harpy how like what's the demon to harpy ratio well well i i, I can't off the top of my head oh i think i think a harpy costs you oof, somewhere between 10 and fifteen thousand pounds a shot oh my god Whoa. we could have a whip around helen we could get, get, a, <laughs> get a harpy for the show get a, a mascot yeah <laughs> i mean the the old, the old leathery puppet head looked quite good, but it, it didn't really quite live up to you know what the digital version was. Fair enough. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Was it a bit well, Muppets Christmas Carol? <laughs> yes. Yeah. We bit. Yeah. Look, they're well they're well employed <laughs> anyway. They uh they they are freaking terrifying looking. So very good. Yeah. <laughs> it works out in the end. Well, listen, I think that's it. But um, but thank you so much for joining us. And um, yeah, yeah, I would say looking forward to next season. But there's something we can't with this one now. So looking forward to whatever's next. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. Me too. No, thanks for thanks for having me. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks very much. Right, let's talk about uh, the Magisterium and Mrs. Coulter. So she's in a she's in a bit of a pickle. They, uh, you know, they're they're gonna sever her demon to murder her daughter. I thought it was interesting that she said she expresses she says good when they say you're gonna sever your demon. Part of me is like, is she just, you know, she just is that sarcastic? Is she just like, yeah, oh, you know, is she being trying to just get one up on them and be powerful? Oh, good, yeah, you do that. That sounds great. Or is or is part of her like? I think because of the, you know, I think part of her would almost like to be separated from her demon, right? That, or am I reading into that too much? Yeah, no, I think I think there's always been that conflict, isn't there? And I think it's been better, but I, I think it's mostly bravado. I think that is mostly bravado of the sense of, oh, what does she know that we don't? You know, maybe this won't work after all. Kind of a kind of a, a play, but also I think that she genuinely does have things in her life that she would give a lot to not have haunting her anymore and i think that you know like like i said before i think there's a huge amount of trauma there and i think that her demon carries a lot of it and that's why she pushes it away yeah, yeah i think so so i so i think there's there, there's still that little bit of conflict there even though they're a bit more on the same page than they ever were at the beginning of of season one so we see father gomez but he, he gets a bit of a setup plot here where he basically says there's a bit of an odd moment here where he's like he he stands up to McPhail and you think right okay he's you know he's he's maybe making a power play here or he's seeing maybe Coulter has shown him what a kind of a fraud McPhail is so excuse me Father President McPhail um and you think oh this is a big moment but then he kind of comes back kind of conciliatory and says I'm so sorry my 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 president my father president I gotta uh, but I, I have an idea. Let's go hunt this serpent. So, I I mean I I was a bit um, confused as to his motivations here. I think maybe he's my what I suspect is he's playing McPhail 
in the sec in the in the second instance in order to get off to find this uh this so-called serpent right yeah i think what we have here are slightly different kinds of fanaticism i think um i think like father gomez is a full-on fanatic he genuinely is horrified at the idea of of mcphail touching someone else's demon which MacPhail is, is I think, also a religious fanatic in this episode, and that really comes across in a way that it hasn't always before. You know, sometimes he seemed purely like a career uh, priest, if you know what I mean. But now he's very much, there is, a, a, there is real fanaticism there as well, as we see as the episode goes on. There's, there's almost religious ecstasy when he's, when he's planning this big move. He's going to save the world. He's going to be the authority's new favorite, you know, and, and there is that <laughs> yeah. kind of genuine, like Look he looks me. like transported, right? Um, in those, in those later scenes. But there's also his little, the chink in his armor. There is the obsession with Mrs. Coulter and that very unhealthy draw that he feels towards her. And that's what you see in that moment with the demon. So, so yeah, I, I think Father Gomez knows, like, you know, if he were a cardinal, I think it would have been a very different outcome. But as a lowly, very young priest, I think he knows his time has not yet come and he is not in no position yet challenge. to challenge MacPhail. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think. No, I think you're right. Uh, and looking forward to uh, Gomez on the hunt for the serpent because he's he's a good villain to have in the wild he's so hissable i hate him so much yeah he's he i mean he has no kindness no mercy no empathy in him like if his idea of mercy is a kid dying in the mother's arms that's no kind of mercy at all you know <laughs> it's awful isn't it but like you said he's like the power of a fanatic is quite terrifying when they are completely resolute because mcphail has enough weakness that he can be overcome or manipulated but gomez the only thing that will work is a rock to the skull as mr Coulter <laughs> learned um i th- i thought the uh, show was so good when in the, in that build up to mrs Coulter's execution that whatever the, the lauren balf score was just like boom, boom. it was like i i was like oh wow i felt the the power of that march uh, towards that that severing, and then it, and then it was like just the whole thing was just super literally explosive, wasn't it? That's, yeah, it really yeah. was. It was hard at, at times to kind of definitely track what was going on at first. Like I wasn't really super clear on what happened in those final moments. So, you know, so obviously, like I, I'm clear in the first part. So she, they've got her in her prison dubs. If we're talking about the power of clothing again, they've tried to strip that from her. She still looks great, obviously. She's kind of on hunger strike because that's the kind of that's the power she can take from them. She won't eat when she's told. She's kind of conspiring with Roke. She is trying to manipulate Dr. Cooper, as we learn eventually successfully. She does talk her around. Um, you know, if he's prepared to kill me, then what the hell do you think he'll do to you? And MacPhail, when he arrives for that execution or that severing, all doled up in his formal robes, you know, he's almost like, hey, this is <laughs> yeah. it. It's all happening now, you know. It's really kind of all building and building and building. And then she does manage to escape. She does manage to get out thanks to Dr. Cooper. Roke kills some of the guards. Dr. Cooper stops the blade from falling. MacPhail is forced to deal with her. The monkey is freed by Roke, ends up trying to free Mrs. Coulter. Okay, like I'm with it all through this. MacPhail starts trying to reset the machine, rushes in. He crushes Roke. Mrs. Mrs. Coulter is basically beating him up, but she can't. She and the monkey worry about Lyra and they go and see, they're distracted by that thing, by that targeting mm. system. And they go looking basically for Lyra. Very Death Star, that targeting very system. Death Star, yeah. Very Death yeah, yeah. yeah. First <laughs> yeah. Death Star, 100%. And then MacPhail straps himself in, puts his, li- his lizard seems to get into the cage of its own device. Yes. Right? Or, or I guess they must, yeah, 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 yeah. It felt like they both knew what they needed to do, right? In this yeah. Moment, this so again, that kind of religious ecstasy, like he's looking up in in glory, but Mrs. Coulter pulls out the bomb guidancey thing that had the hair in it before. So we're like, phew, all is well. And then the hammer falls. Yes. So yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you. It is a little. It does feel a little bit unclear as to how that has happened, but we do know that he has been severed. We know he has been severed. We know uh, he is, yes, he's gone. That is, he is off the table. That's a that's a f- series wrap on Father President MacPhail. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. But and but it what what comes basically is like a tiny moment earlier in the episode comes back to bite them. So you know, Azrael's prisoner has been freed, goes home to Metatron, reports in. Metatron's basically like, we'll see about that. Fuck that guy. And his response is, you think dust can make you gods? Let's see how you fare without it. So it's almost like a lightning bolt hitting the chamber that kills Father McPhail rather than a button the machine being itself. pressed. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, the machine has been dismantled, right? So I think yeah. it's, yeah, something, a higher power uh, has has a... Has uh, in intervened here when science was left out, right? So that that that's our that's I think yeah. Metatron is delivering his he's responding to Azrael's message, right? Essentially, yeah. Yes, uh, emphatically so. And and Mrs. Coulter is basically left there to scream scream and cover her ears. That is not what you know we were led to believe was going to happen <laughs> at the end of this episode. So um, I guess a literal act of God. What are you going to do? Yes, yeah, yeah, literally. And I like the way you described that look on McPhail's face because, because, and that's what's kind of frustrating about it as an audience because he, I think he feels vindicated, right? At the end of this, because he is getting direct communication from God, like that. And that's like, it's making him feel even more like the, what he's doing is the right thing. And that, and I hate that he got to go out on that note. Oh, that's true. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. Oh, how annoying. You wanted all his hopes and dreams to be crushed. Exactly. That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> oh, we're nice people, really. I promise. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> right. Well, uh, I think that wraps, uh, wraps it up. That takes us to the end of uh, episode five. See you guys for uh, next week, episode six. It's going to be another big one, I suspect. See you then. Bye-bye. His Darker Materials is a stripped media production. Our producer and editor is Maddie Searle. All our music was composed by John Dix. Our artwork was created by Sam Gilby. Our executive producers are Kobe Amanaka and Tom Wally. Our hosts are Helen O'Hara and myself, Dave Corkery. A big thank you to Ian Johnson at IJPR, to Bad Wolf at the BBC, and to all our guests for taking the time to chat to us. If you want to chat to us, you can do it at producers at stripped.media. You just heard a stripped media production.